I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hi, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. Oh, I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. I, I'm so obsessed with this woman. So... <laughs> Valerie Carr is a seasoned civil rights activist and celebrated prophetic voice at the forefront of progressive change, according to the Center of American Progress. Valerie burst into American consciousness in the wake of the 2016 election when her watch night service address went viral with 30 plus million views worldwide. I did not see that exact talk. Oh, you haven't watched it? No, but I saw the talk that prepared her for that one, which was at Together Rising prior to the 2016 election. So her question, is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb, which we talk about in the episode, reframed the political moment and became a mantra for people fighting for change. Valerie now leads the Revolutionary Love Project to reclaim love as a force for justice in America. As a lawyer, filmmaker, and innovator, she has won policy change on multiple fronts, hate crimes, racial profiling, immigration detention, solitary confinement, internet freedom, and more. She founded Groundswell Movement, Faithful Internet, and the Yale Visual Law Project to inspire and equip new generations of advocates. And she's been a regular TV commentator on MSNBC and contributor to CNN, NPR, PBS, The Hill, Huffington Post, and The Washington Post. She's the daughter of Sikh farmers in California's heartland, and she has earned degrees at Stanford, Harvard Divinity, and Yale Law. She is really freaking smart. And her new book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, expands on her blockbuster TED Talk and is out now and is so powerful. I have been deeply moved by this book, which is why we invited her Mm -hmm. to come on the Kate and Mike show. So what did we talk about, honey? What didn't we talk about? I know. We talked, covered a lot of ground, but we talked about her book, basically See No Stranger and what revolutionary love is and how we can actually affect, because she talks about in her TED Talk, it's love for yourself, love for others and love for your opponents and what that means in more detail. So we covered that. We talked about her films a little bit. I asked some, I watched... She came out with uh, her first film that she did was called Divided We Fall. It was Americans in the aftermath of 9-11 and basically the post 9-11 hate crimes that happened, which a lot of times they do not hit the media whatsoever. But this is real. It's going on right now in this country as we speak. And it has been for a long time. But there's, you know, she has on her website and which will be linked up in the show notes. She has a lot of films that her and her husband have done. They were business partners for a really long time. They still are, but he's doing some other things at this moment. But there's a lot of short films. There's longer films. And so I actually was able to watch a lot of those before we, not not all of them. There's They've done quite a few, but that was pretty cool. We just kind of talked a little bit about that, but really diving into how do you show up in a way that is loving in an environment that we're currently in. And what I love about Valerie is that she says the way we make change is just as important as the change we make. So she and I are sisters in the cause for sustainability in the way we work. Now, 
I talk more about entrepreneurship. She talks more about activism. But there's a part in the interview where I read her segment from her book. Well, I was really reading it for you. But it turns out I was also reading it for Valerie. And she's at this really interesting moment in her own life and journey around, you know, just work and sustainability and how do we stay in the labor? You know, and for anyone else who's given birth, there is this moment in labor possibly the whole thing, <laughs> but possibly a moment. And I remember it very well in both of my labors where I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Also, I don't think I can. And here we are, right? It's now August and we've been, you know, you might be listening to this at another time, but it's August 2020 when this is coming out. We've been navigating COVID as a society now for probably much longer than many of us thought. We are riding a continued rising around racial justice, which is a long time coming. And so the question really is, as we head towards the 2020 election and beyond, how do we stay in the labor? Like, how do we stay when part of us thinks we can't and certainly part of us doesn't want to anymore? And so this episode and certainly Valerie's book, See No Stranger, answers that incredibly important question. And if you are moved Please share the episode. Please subscribe to the show. Please send feedback, questions. Just let us know how this lands with you. Sending you so much love. And please go get the book, See No Stranger. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Valerie. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. I'm so happy to be here with you, Kate and Mike. <laughs> Thanks for being here. We are just thrilled to be here. As I left you a voice memo yesterday or two days ago, I'm quite moved by your book and I'm finding myself just stopping working in the middle of the day and going over to my chair and reading, which has actually literally never happened before. <laughs> so thank you for writing. Thank you for writing this beautiful book, See No Stranger, yeah, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. It's gorgeous. Thank you. Good you know, writer. I, I yeah. feel like I'm, <laughs> yeah. thanks Mike. You're, you're a good writer. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I feel like I'm in this, this postpartum haze, you know, I'm like super tired and I'm like relieved. I'm shocked that the book came out of me. I'm worried about its future. <laughs> will, will it do its work in the world? And will it live with the life it's supposed to live? And, and I'm also like sinking into surrender and just trying to think about what it means now to trust the work. So the fact that you're, you're reading it with such an open heart and open mind, it feels like, oh, you're holding my third baby in your arms. <laughs> Thank you for loving it so well. <laughs> mm. Well, I just wanted to yeah. ask her something based off what she just said. Great. When you say that, will it do its work in the world? And you're kind of, I forget the exact phrasing. You're a little scared or afraid. It Will it do its work in the world? I can't remember the exact word you used. But what do you mean by that? What What is concerning? Oh, well, it's a little insane to release a book during a global pandemic. <laughs> and during a national uprising, global uprising for racial justice. And yet... This is, and with the 2020 election looming on the horizon, and yet this is exactly the moment when I feel like I want people to, to read it, to receive it, to hold it in their hands like a, a companion in this time. And so it's, it's that 
it's that, Mike. Mm. So Valerie, there were a couple of years ago, I think it was 20, I think it was 2017. 2017, I was at, I don't know, I think it was maybe like the, some venue in Brooklyn, a really big venue in Brooklyn with our friend Megan Watterson, who is, who I became aware of you through to begin with. Yes. Um, and you were on stage at the Together Rising or the Together, yeah, Together Rising tour that Glennon Doyle and her organization were putting on. And I remember you were on stage telling your birth story. And this was just prior. No, it was 2016 because it was just prior to the election or just after. Do you remember? It was just prior. It was just prior to the election. And you were on stage telling your birth story. And Megan and I were sitting in a row of women we did not know. And we were all holding hands, sobbing. (laughs) And it was so beautiful. I had just only given birth for the first time a year before. And so it was still pretty raw, though I have no doubt that I would sob the same amount if I heard you tell the same story right now. And there was an analogy you were sharing about being in labor and it's woven throughout your entire book. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what birth has to do with that moment in history before the 2016 election. And here we are (laughs) four years later uh, before the 2020 election. What do they have to do with each other in your opinion? It's a long labor. It's a long labor. <laughs> long labor. Well, I, I noticed in myself, I mean, I, I, I've been an activist for almost 20 years. I mean, since the aftermath of September 11th. And so, you know, with every film, with every campaign, with every lawsuit, I thought we were making the nation safer for the next generation. And then when you saw me, Kate, I had just become a new mother to my son and hate crimes were skyrocketing once again. The president, you know, we didn't know that he was going to take power, but already white nationalists were calling 2016 their great awakening. And so I felt so breathless and I thought, well, what was it all for if not to make the nation safer for my children? And now they're growing up in a country more dangerous for them as little brown children than it was for me or even for my grandfather when he arrived a century ago. So I had this totally breathless moment. And it was visceral. It was in my body. It was like my throat seizing up. It was my, my veins like bursting out of my wrists. Like it was, it felt like dying. And I thought, oh, the last time I felt this breathless was on the birthing table. Mm-hmm. And I thought back to that stage in birthing labor called transition where, you know, the contractions come so fast, you can barely catch your breath. And it feels like dying and yet it is the stage that precedes the birth of new life. And so I thought, Oh, what did the wisdom, what what did the midwife tell me to do? She said, she said, breathe and push. And so this question arose in me, what if this, and honestly, Kate, Mike, this is a question I continue to ask myself (laughs) every day because it has only gotten darker, right? What if this darkness in our nation, in our world right now, what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What is longing to be born? What if the America that we believe in is not dead, but a country still longing to be born? And truly, I believe now, four years later, that it is both. 
that it is the darkness of the tomb when 140,000 people have died in our country, deaths that were preventable if we had competent leadership, when they are disproportionately people of color, when Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many more people of color, black people dying at the hands of state violence. That, that feels like death has won because it has. And yet, <laughs> and yet we're seeing glimpses of a national uprising, global uprising for racial justice that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. It's a revolutionary moment where millions of people now are longing to take part in birthing the nation that we always thought we were and that we might be if we stay in the labor. So, so yeah, so my question is like, you know, when I first asked that question on that stage, Kate, a few months later, that question went viral. It was like 40 million people, right? And I had had like so many people ask me like, okay, but how do we breathe? How do we push? (laughs) I'm in, but how do we do this thing? And, you know, how do we stay in the labor for justice when it is so long? It's so hard. It feels so impossible. And I, you know, I needed to answer those questions for myself more than anyone else. And so I was given a gift that very few women who are mothers and activists ever get. I got time off in a room of my own. And I took my family to the rainforest in Central America. And I, it felt like, honestly, the rainforest felt like a womb, like it was warm and wet and generative. And it, I feel like I took my first deep breath that I had taken in years. And And I poured through the stories of my life and the stories of social movements in the past, and I began to see patterns that I call practices of revolutionary love. And I began writing this book, See No Stranger. What is the, I want to talk about the darkness of the womb for a second here. What happens, like what does the world look like in 20 years if we don't start actually doing revolutionary love like this but worse <laughs> oh well i that's what i would say sorry, i thought you were gonna say something revolutionary i was waiting but yes no it's true yeah yeah well, let's think about it within within 25 years we know that the number of people of color in this country will exceed the number of white people yeah. for the yeah. first time since colonization and so the convulsive you know, moment that we are in right now is part of this larger transition. And, and it is a question, you know, w- will we continue to descend into a, a kind of civil war, like a, a power struggle with those who want to return America to a past where a certain class of white people hold power? I mean, this, this question holds no matter who gets elected in November. It matters who gets elected, but all the people who are rising up right now rallying around this president are not going away the day after the election. Yeah. You know, or are we going to labor enough together in these practices of revolutionary love to to birth a nation that has really is never been on the face of the planet, a nation made up of other nations, truly multiracial, multi-faith, multicultural, where we see no stranger. And so my offering in this moment is to say, well, the only way we will get there in 20, 25 years is if we begin to make love the ethic of our lives and our movements. And love is only revolutionary when it has no limit. So what does it mean to love others who are in harm's way? What does it mean to love ourselves? What does it mean to love our opponents? (laughs) That kind of new way of being together as a beloved community is how we will birth the beloved community. 
So Valerie, loving our opponents. So loving, you know, loving our family. Most people have that down, even though it continues to be challenging. <laughs> loving people who agree with us. Yep. Okay. Easier. Loving our opponents who we completely disagree with, who are infuriating, who are harming people we love, who are sometimes harming us, um, who have caused tremendous harm. So those stories of you being able to lean in and say like, okay, this person, like, how can I wonder about them? How can I stay in choosing wonder? Can you talk about one of those scenarios, either one from the book or a recent one, where you have chosen wonder instead of hate? And like, how does one do that in the moment? Or how do you do that? Yes. In fact, can I read you an excerpt from the book? That'd be great. So I spent a week at Guantanamo Bay as a legal observer. And I remember I was so shocked by how normal the military base tried to make itself look. I mean, there was a McDonald's and a Starbucks and an Irish pub and, and just over the hill, a detention center where we have done unspeakable things. And I kept looking around at the soldiers around me and I just couldn't look into their eyes because I, I had just gone to a military commission hearing where I saw Omar Khadr, one of the youngest to be apprehended and a young boy who spent years coming of age in Guantanamo. And I couldn't shake his eyes. I couldn't shake his eyes. And so I sat at the Irish pub that night and was writing in my journal, collecting my notes. And I couldn't look into the eyes of the soldiers around me because all I could think about was Omer's face. And just then a soldier plops down in front of me. I see you writing in your book, he said, which was another way to say, I see you judging us. Look, the rest of the world doesn't see what I see. The guards act with professionalism and respect and the detainees, they don't play by the rules. They throw bags of feces at us like every day. We cater to these prisoners, he went on. We treat them so well as long as they're compliant. And you know what? They get more freedom than we do. He leaned forward. They make it easy for us to hate them. Rage flushed through my body. <laughs> my throat closed in. My fists clenched. I wanted to get up and leave. The bar broke out in a roar, a run in the game. But the soldier did not look up. He was looking into his beer. I noticed the sweat on his brow, the way his hands fidgeted. I took a breath. He has a story. He has a story, I thought. I forced myself to look into his eyes. Wonder. Wonder is an act of will. Why? I asked him. Why? They get to say anything they want. They get to do anything they want, he said slowly. We don't. He fidgeted with his purple wristband and took another sip of beer. Soldiers must wear wristbands to drink when they entered this bar. Then it happened. I saw a lonely, frail young man. He was a child when 9-11 happened. He signed up for the military to serve his country. He needed to believe he was fighting for freedom when he watched bombs kill his friends in the battlefield. He needed to believe that the people he guarded at Guantanamo were guilty. He resented the world's sympathy for the prisoners and described himself as a captive of Guantanamo. How dare he, I thought. But all the soldiers here were young. 18, 19, 22 rotated in batches every year. They were prisoners of a different kind. 
servants to institutions that train them to participate in the project of dehumanization. That's how oppression works. It captures generations and assigns each of us roles. On the military base here, it had captured our generation. All of us were young. Omar, the soldier, and me. The prisoner, the guard, the witness. We had not created Guantanamo. We had inherited Guantanamo. In fact, we had inherited Guantanamo's. Thank you. Mm. You see, Kate, Mike, I, I know. <laughs> Can I just keep reading? Oh, good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, good. I believe this call to love our opponents, it's not just a moral call. It is pragmatic. It is strategic. Yes. Because if I refuse to see my opponents as monsters, I mean, there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who are doing what they're doing out of their own sense of insecurity or greed or blindness or anxiety or longing or suffering. So once we begin to, to see them and hear their story, we begin to see their wound and we see that participation in oppression, it comes at a cost. It cuts them off from their own capacity to love. And our goal then, like the reason this is pragmatic is, is because then our goal is not just to unseat bad actors, like a few bad police officers, a few bad prison guards, shut down a few. No, our goal is to imagine a world where all of us are free of cages, including the ones who hold the keys to ourselves. It's to liberate all of us. Amen. Okay. So... How do we do this? Well, I have two questions. The first one is, because you talk about, you know, in your TED Talk, you talked about love for others, love for ourselves, and love for our opponents. Is it possible to love like our opponents if we can't look in the mirror and love what we see? Hmm. Like, is there stages to work on first? You know, it's like, do you work on yourself first? Do you... Because if we're not taking care of ourselves and we're trying to go out there and love our opponents, like, so. I don't think we should think of it like a sequence because we'll never get around to loving anyone else. (laughs) 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 I am still working on looking in the mirror and loving myself. Like that is like where my work continues to lie. But in the meantime, it's all a practice that fuses. It's like a dance, you know, like I'm orienting to myself with wonder. When I call the book See No Stranger, it's not seeing anyone as strange, not not those out there, including our opponents, but not ourselves either. And too often people of color, women of color, certainly I have had this experience where we grow up in a culture that wants to make us strange to ourselves, that tells us we are not good enough or smart enough or beautiful enough or white enough or American enough or whatever enough to do what we are called to do in the world, to love ourselves. And so my task has been trying to connect with the deepest wisdom inside of me (laughs) to say, oh, no, my love, to become my own midwife. Oh, breathe, my love. Push, my love. You are brave enough to do this. You are brave enough to show up in this moment. And so I think it all happens sort of at the same time, and we can decide where we need to focus in any given moment. And we all have a different role when it comes to the larger community and a larger movement. We all have a different role in the labor of revolutionary love, because it could be that in this moment, 
my job is to pour a lot of love into myself and my family. It could be in this moment, my job is to reach out and build bonds of solidarity. It could be in this moment, I'm safe enough to reach out to my opponents. But it's almost like, I, like, I love this word role literacy, to be literate in your role in any given moment is to know when to breathe, when to push, where to put your love and what you're called to do now and next. That's good. I mean, that comes back with like self-awareness. Yes. And, and this, right? goes, this goes to something I really need to, to make clear whenever I talk about love for opponents. It's not a popular thing to call for in this moment. <laughs> and, and this is where I say, well, well, love can only be practiced in community because if you are someone who has a knee on your neck right now, like so many black people, like so many people of color have in this moment. If a knee is on your neck, it is not necessarily your role in this moment to look up at your oppressor and wonder about them or even try to love them. Like, no, your job is to stay alive. Your job is to take the next breath. Your job is to survive and to love yourself well enough to fight for your life. Like that is your revolutionary act. But if you are someone by virtue of your skin color or your privilege, if you find yourself safe enough to wonder about those kinds of opponents, then maybe it is your role in this moment to reach out. I think about, you know, reaching out to, to the disaffected white people in your life, maybe neighbors, maybe family members, and sitting with them and hearing their stories and tending to their wound and helping them. So many of the people who are supporting Trump. It's just unresolved grief. They are grieving the notion that this nation ever belonged just to them in the first place. And somebody has to tend to their grief. I don't believe it's legitimate, but someone has to tend to it. Otherwise, there's no transformation that will happen. It's not my role in this moment. I can't do it. I have to keep my family and community alive in this moment, but it may be yours. So I want to read an excerpt of your book. You said, it's two different little parts here. You said, the way we make change is just as important as the change we make. And then you continue. I had been made to believe that overwork was the only way to make a difference. I had come to measure my sense of worth by how much I produced, how well I responded, and how quickly. I had worked for so long and so hard and at such great speeds that I had become accustomed to breathlessness. I'm going to read another part too. It's just so good. <laughs> so then, it, then you said, this is what I want to tell you. You don't have to make yourself suffer in order to serve. You don't have to grind your bones into the ground. You don't have to cut your life up into pieces and give yourself away until there is nothing left. You belong to a community and a broader movement. Your life has value. We need you alive. We need you to last. You will not last if you are not breathing. So now you wrote this two years ago now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you mind sharing an update <laughs> <laughs> on where you are now? Because I know that you wrote that while you were pregnant with your second and you know, now you've got two kids and we're in this really intense moment in history. So just, yeah, where are you with that right now personally? You know, I'm just closing my eyes and I let, I let you read to me. And it was almost like receiving wisdom that I need to hear. <laughs> when I first went to the rainforest to start writing this book, it was really like I had pushed for more than 15 years at that point without having 
taken a deep and long breath and I wasn't going to last. I truly, it was, you know, there was a voice in my, in my mind that was just like, I prefer non-existence to this. Like I was grinding my bones to the ground. I was sacrificing my life for the cause. And I think about so many black women, brown women who get sick or opt out or take their life or lose their life when they are always frontline responding to such atrocities. And that was going to be me. That was going to be me. So this task of writing this book and leaving, it was really a godsend. It was, it was like, it saved my life. And then writing the book was an act of survival too, because I wanted to be able to come back to the country with a handbook for myself <laughs> for how to keep going. You know, I, I want to be like Grace Lee Boggs one day. Like I want to be an old woman. I want us all to grow old together. Like I want to last. And so how do we breathe? Not just, you know, in these big grand gestures, I'm going to leave the country for a year. No, no, no. How do we breathe in the contours of our daily life? And it's something that I am still finding and, and living into it. I think maybe your book, Do Less, <laughs> Kate, is going to help me figure out how I put more pockets of breath in my day. I'm getting there. I'm closer than before. You know, I'm able, you know, I spent the morning with my babies at the ocean and just feeling the sun on my face and being here now and letting joy come to me, even in a, t- in a time like this, right? And I... After this, I'll spend a long time nursing her before I go to the next thing. And tonight we will do dance time because we do dance time every night. So I'm getting there. How do I weave breath into my day? And then how do I weave breath into the rhythm of a week and then in a rhythm of a month and then in the rhythm of a year and then in the seasons of my life? And this is where I think you know activists like me can really look to people like you who have done the work of wellness And just as folks in the wellness world can look to us into how to push, you know, how do we breathe? You teach us. How do we push? We'll teach you. (laughs) We need each other. We need each other to stay in the labor. So good. So in terms of role literacy, you know, you just spoke to that, those of us who are learning to push. And I think that there are folks listening on both sides of the spectrum. But if you are somebody who's learning to push and, and looking to somebody like you, Valerie, how do we figure out what our role is in the labor of love and revolutionary love? Oh, it's a less of a figuring out. It's mm. less of a head thing and it's more of um, a heart and body thing. <laughs> it's like, what do you feel in your body? What breaks your heart? What do you feel like you need to retreat from because it is too painful? You know, when you're in birthing labor, when you feel that ring of fire, when the baby's about to come, it's like your whole instinct is to like retreat from it. And yet you actually have to go through the fire. You have to push into the discomfort in order for anything new to emerge and to be. And so similarly, if there are parts of your life that are uncomfortable and you've been retreating from it because you can't hear the story of migrant children at the border, or you can't think about the hospital down the street and people dying alone, or you can't look into the faces of the homeless people who are pitching tents in your neighborhood, that's probably a sign that, oh, maybe this is a a place, this is a space where I need to summon up my deepest bravery to go toward the discomfort and to sit there and to let it transform me and let it change me. And oftentimes that means allowing yourself to feel profound and deep grief 
because if you're taking in someone's story, if you're taking in someone's pain, it's allowing that grief to enter your body and your heart, allowing it to change you. And it's okay if you don't know what to say or what to do next. No, no, no. Being there is being in relationship. And then the relationship itself will give you information for how to show up, what they need, how to advocate, what to protest, what to support, how to organize, and what your role is in it. Every one of us has a role, no matter what our set of skills, no matter what our sphere of influence, no matter what our resources, no matter where we are, each of us, every single one of us has a role in transitioning this country. That's how it starts in those small places in your own daily life. I'm waiting for you. Oh. (laughs) I was like, I wish I could see your faces right now. (laughs) I don't know what is happening over here. Um, We're taking you in, Valerie. Yeah. Okay. I've literally been listening. I was, for those of you, I was telling Valerie, she, on her website, she has all these videos and films that she's done. And I think I watched like six and a half hours today of your films. (laughs) (laughs) And then yesterday was more eat, et cetera. So just to kind of see what you've been doing. One word that came during one of your, a couple of your talks and your films was forgiveness. Mm. Can you, I'm just going to let you expand on that. Oh, I really learned about forgiveness the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I learned by watching my mother. My mother had, you know, was married to my father at 18 years old And my father was a good and loyal man, but his mother, my mother's mother-in-law was the matriarch of our family. And she just, she was kind to everyone else, but she really mistreated my mother for many, many, many years and really took her youth, made her ill. And, you know, fast forward all these years, my mother goes on her own healing journey and I rush home because I hear that my grandmother is on her deathbed and I'm sitting, I rush into the room and there's my grandmother lying and my mother at her side swabbing her lips and my mother singing the prayers with her over and over helping my grandmother die it was such a loving gesture it was like she became daughter in that moment and afterwards i asked my mother like how how did you do that how did you forgive her And my mother says, forgiveness is for you, not them. Like forgiveness was for me. I forgave her to free myself. My mother taught me that, you know, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate, from animosity. And maybe my mother needed to hold on to that animosity for a number of years. Maybe that was her sense of agency. And so some victims, some survivors will withhold their forgiveness as an act of agency. And we must respect that because so much has been taken from them. But I think we can also respect and embrace women like my mother who say, I'm ready to let go of this hate. I'm ready to be free. I'm ready to free myself. And that process of forgiveness, I think, can also open the previously unimaginable possibility of reconciliation because of the person who hurt you is then ready to ask for forgiveness, to take full responsibility. Then it can look like that image that I saw of my mother at the deathbed of my grandmother, finding peace at the end of life. 
so I saw this in my family and, and then I began to think, well, what, what do I need to, who am I ready to forgive? And, you know, you read it in the book or maybe it's coming for you, Kate, and see no stranger. <laughs> There's acts of forgiveness that I never thought I would be able to, to do. I mean, a relative who I'm like many women, I'm a survivor of sexual assault and I never thought I could ever forgive the man who hurt me. And 20 years later, I held my own truth and reconciliation commission with him and found a sense of peace and wholeness that I never thought I could find even after the trauma, even when the trauma continues to live in my body. And similarly, I mean, the story of Bilbir Singh Sodhi, I, I became an activist after Bilbir uncle was killed in the first hate crime after 9-11 and 15 years later sat with his brother Rana Sodhi to call Bilbir uncle's murderer and choose to forgive him. You know, for me, it took 20 years for my abuser, for the Sodi family, it took 15 years. For my mother, it took decades. I think that there's a lot of grieving and raging and love that we must receive and healing that must be done before we can even come to the point where we would want to forgive. But those acts, those kind of brave revolutionary acts, I think may be instructive for what we might be able to do as a nation as we think about how to transition ourselves. Yeah. So I was reading in your book about your honeymoon and that sounded amazing. <laughs> and I love <laughs> the way that you talked about the different places that you visited and each thing that you experienced. And you were talking about Tanzania and watching the animals and the profound violence in the animal mm. kingdom, but also the love. And I love biomimicry and the study of the natural world and how it gives us clues as to how we as humans, which P.S. we are not separate from the natural world, can choose to live and love and heal and thrive. And I'm just curious, to what extent do you think love is part of a survival instinct for us to the degree that we are actually animals? Like, what do you think love has to do with survival as a species? Oh, we could not survive if it weren't for love. It is completely against the self-interest of a mother to be willing to sacrifice her entire life <laughs> for her babies when a wolf appears at the door of the cave. You know, it's just like, why does she not run? Why does she stay and fight? And you think about us, you think about human beings, how much we have given and given over and over again for our children just in the course of a day. Like, I never let anyone take away my sleep <laughs> before my babies were born. <laughs> And here I am waking up at 5.30 in the morning consistently every single day for the last five years. Yep, right there with you. <laughs> so it's the grand, yes, I will give my life. And it's the small, like I will sacrifice my own needs in order to love you. Like love is labor. Love is not an exchange economy. You don't do it because you think you're going to get something back. Love is sweet labor. It is fierce. It is bloody. It is imperfect. It is life-giving. It's a choice that any of us who do the work of caregiving have to make over and over and over again. And so I've been really fascinated by love as this evolutionary force. That's how we survive as an animal species. But it's also a love that's come at a limit because we are also wired to see the world in terms of us and them to protect mm. our babies and our kin 
and fight anyone who is not us in order to survive. And what I have been so captivated by is this intervention in that dominant way of being by spiritual teachers and social reformers through the last few thousand years, calling us to love without limit, calling us to expand the circle of who counts as one of us, who counts as our family, to include all of us. And so when Guru Nanak says, Nako Bedi Nehi Bagana, Nako Bedi Nehi Bagana, I see no enemy, I see no stranger, he is echoing a truth that's passed down from, you know, from Abraham to Jesus to Muhammad to Buddha to indigenous leaders around the globe. The call that we hear now today, what it means to, to love beyond what evolution requires. And actually, maybe it is what evolution requires now, because the only <laughs> way we're going to survive as a human species, this pandemic has shown us that we are deeply interconnected and no matter, no number of walls or border walls or bands or boundaries can deny the truth now that we are one human family. So if we are one human family, how do we get all of us <laughs> to survive together? How do we practice the kind of love we show for our babies so that we see all children as our own children? and all people as a part of us. I think that's the evolutionary leap, that consciousness shifting that we must make now. And what my hope is that this book, this framework is an offering for people who are saying, yes, I want to practice this. I want to practice this. So I was, I don't know how to ask this question, but like a big piece of this is getting men on board to change this, to have a revolutionary love experience. And why I was watching your videos, I also watched this small clip from the Joe Rogan show with Ben Shapiro. For those of you who don't, he's a pretty conservative guy. You didn't watch them at the same time. No, but what was <laughs> fascinating is to listen to your talk and then listen to these two white guys talk about what was going on. And... I'm like, we're on two separate planets here, <laughs> you know, like, and it was interesting to, because I don't, you know, like Ben Shapiro and myself, I would say have really radically different views. And so from each other. Yeah. I, I mean, the end result is the same, right? It's like, he wants to have a healthy family. He wants to get along with people, but just like how to get there is, is really different. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things going on this, but this isn't about Ben Shapiro. Um, but it's just like, you know, it's like when you start with just because I've been around this community for a long time, working with Kate in this business, and it's predominantly women going to like Hay House events or women showing up at these events. And so I guess that's my job, right. Is to, to educate men in this conversation. But that's just in the United States. There's a giant world out here. So how do we bring this to the masses? Mm. Well, I think one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is about how quickly we rush to the metaphors of war. Mm. <laughs> We're at war with this virus. This virus is the enemy, as opposed to like, you know, falling in love with humanity even more <laughs> because this virus exposes how we're all vulnerable together, connected together. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, how only a subset of men through human history have had the experience of going to war. 
And yet all of us use those metaphors. I mean, I use those metaphors. My ancestors were a warrior people. So be a good warrior for social justice, right? Soldier on, fight the good fight. And how that ends up being the dominant frame for how so many of these conversations take place. Even the election, you know, are we going to win? Mm. Are we going to win as if it all is solved upon winning? And then I think about, well, only a subset of women through history give birth in that particular way that I was describing. And yet the metaphor for birthing offers up some wisdom for the kind of energy and bravery it takes to create something new. (laughs) And maybe what we need right now is to say, you know, this creative labor of birthing new possibilities, birthing new worlds, reimagining together, that's not a biological right. That is a human birthright that all of us, you, Mike, (laughs) have the ability and you have demonstrated it in your life to think about the kind of rhythm that you need to birth new art and new stories and new realities and new family dynamics and new, new possibilities and movements for justice. So if we think about all of these creative labors, the labor of birthing a new nation and the labor of making a life as creative labors, and we look to the wisdom of the midwife of breathing and pushing together and not leaving anyone behind and all of us entering new worlds together, then I think that is the consciousness shift that I think we can offer in this moment and that men can take up just as we've taken up the metaphors of war. What if like we invite all the men, <laughs> Joe Rogan, like all the men you were talking about, take <laughs> yes. up these metaphors is, you know, Ani DeFranco has been writing songs to go with See No Stranger. And one of them is called Ask a Mother. And she has a line in there and she says, Ask a Mother, we don't fight to win. <laughs> right? <laughs> we labor, we labor to create a new beloved community for all of us. I mean, I, it clicked in my head because you, it's like listening to the two guys that I talked about. It's like they were talking about moving forward in the world in the system that we knew existed previously. Right. You know, and they're like, oh, in just kind of operation from it. And then you shared in one of your videos about feminist intervention. I think that's what you said. Yeah. Like we're in a moment of like feminist intervention. And to me, that's kind of what, that's what makes based off what you just said, like, that's what I feel like it is. And it's for us as men to definitely listen, pay attention to what's going on just as like, as a white male in the United States, listen to a lot of different voices that's been taking place and people sharing their stories and then able to move forward in the revolutionary love based off of, you know, with new roles or not, maybe not roles, but new information to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's get those birth metaphors going on the Joe Rogan show. <laughs> he, yeah. He needs to have some more birth yes, conversation. He does. Okay. So as we, Mike, I have a final question, but I also yeah, want to leave ahead. space. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm, so as we bring our time, this amazing time together to a close, I'm so, I just really want to just lay some appreciation and just say like, I am, <laughs> I am so moved by your work. I mean, I've known about you since the first reveal conference, whenever that was in 2000 eight or something. 
So I've been, you know, following along for a while now, but like this works, you know, stranger, you know, when Mike said, how do we get this out to the masses? Well, you know, my, my blessing, my prayer is that, you know, millions and millions of people read this book because you can't read this book and not be changed. And as we come to a close here, I'd love to know what your prayer for this book is. Oh, that this book finds its way into the hands of anyone who is feeling breathless, anyone who is feeling overwhelmed and who wants to show up and doesn't know how to show up or who has been showing up but is too tired to keep going, that this might be a companion for you that puts breath in your body and helps you keep going the way that it is helping me keep going. (laughs) And that's it, Kate. That's it. I believe revolutions don't just happen in these big, grand public moments, but also in the, in the spaces where people are coming together to practice a new way of being. And so if we can sort of see these pockets of revolutionary love, you know, in our lives around the country, then maybe, maybe that's what will help transition us in those 25 years so that our, that our children will be inheriting a country that is more safe for them than this one. Beautiful. So if you're listening, get yourself a copy of revolution, not revolutionary love of see no stranger, (laughs) practice revolutionary love. And then Valerie, where would you like people to learn more and engage with your work? Folks can go to see no stranger.com. And that's where you can find the book. You can find these virtual book clubs that we, uh, that have taken off around the country. They're sort of their own pockets of revolutionary love. And this is the one last thing I wanted to share with you all, because I feel like I've, I led with some, you know, some heaviness in our conversation. And I just want to say that I have found that when we are laboring with love, then the labor becomes an end in itself. Like I may not live to see the fruits of my labor. I may not live to see that day when the country will be one where we see no stranger, you know, I may not get there, but if I'm laboring in love, if I'm breathing and I'm pushing and I'm doing it with you, then the labor is porous enough to let joy rush in. And you'll see when you finish the book, Kate, that I believe that laboring with joy is the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Valerie. Thanks. Thank you both. Are you curious about creating and launching a digital course, or do you want to improve upon the one you already have? What if you knew the 20% of action steps that you need to take to get 80% of the results? I've created a do less course creation guide with the simple steps that I took to launch my first digital course and sell it without even having created it yet. And you can get that guide plus a playlist of episodes of the Kate and Mike show all about digital course creation and launching to act as a mini curriculum for you to build a thriving digital course business. Head over to katenorthrup.com forward slash digital courses, all one word. Again, that's katenorthrup.com forward slash digital courses, all one word to get the free cheat sheet and the podcast playlist.